Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Oye, Beltaloda. Que we to pensa era the expanse. Ah, Sasuke Baranta, the expanse beast bien. <laughs> okay, so if you don't know about the series The Expanse, you should. It is now officially my favorite fiction series ever. Not just science fiction, but fiction. And Eric, I know you like it. I don't know if it's your favorite, but I found out about it from you. I think I would say it's my favorite. It's also my tech co-founder Dan's favorite and very possibly my girlfriend's favorite. It's really good. Yeah, if you don't know The Expanse, originally it was a book series. First book came out in 2011. It was made into a TV show by the Sci-Fi Network, which carried it for three seasons. Then it got canceled. And then sort of an amazing TV series story, Amazon then picked it back up. So season four is already signed. It's coming out in mid-December. And season five is already set up now. So thank you, Jeff Bezos. There's a great there's, there's great clip on YouTube of Bezos actually announcing that Amazon saved the Expanse with the Expanse crew in the audience. It's a nice feel good. Oh, movement. and they go they just go bananas. They're just all over the place. And we decided so we didn't do a normal intro for this one because we decided we're just going to this is an episode for us and it's an episode for you dear listeners and it's an episode for the ages. Because it is episode number one, zero, zero. Boom. Welcome to episode 100 of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. And we decided for this one, we're going to have some fun. We are going to today, we're going to stick with the Reconsider theme, but we're going to do it in a place that isn't as dire and terrible as Earth now. We're going to do it in a fictional universe where we can just enjoy ourselves. We are going to be talking about the geopolitics of the expanse. But since the expanse takes part in space, Eric, should we call it the astropolitics? Ooh, actually, yeah. Okay, fine. We'll call it the astropolitics, or at least we'll try. We'll try to call it the astropolitics of the expanse. And so today we're talking about the astropolitics of the expanse, and we're going to learn a lot about how geopolitics works here in boring old earth anyway. And just as a warning for those of you who have not made it through season three or book three of the expanse, this will spoil everything in those first three books. Okay. Everything. So if you've, if you're caught up on the show, you're great. If you're anywhere close to caught up on the books, you're great. If you're not, you're doomed. So 
you know, put this down and go listen to it later because I would actually really hate to spoil this one for you. So, all right. Everyone out of the room? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. All right. Now get the heck out of here. Now, for those of you who are cool enough to be all caught up like we are, let's do this. Bam. So, Xander's fandom aside, I love The Expanse because the science is great. If you're a hard sci-fi fan, it's really well thought out. The characters are complex and multi-layered. They're not clear-cut they have po- mm. they have positive and negative aspects to their personalities, and there are no real heroes. And in fact, the only guy who kind of counts as a hero, Captain James Holdem, often ends up screwing stuff up more because of his righteous attitude. Yeah, yeah. In the words of Christian Avasarla, James fucking Holden. <laughs> he's such a bubblehead. Well, I know he. She didn't such say that bu- about Holden, but yeah. that's a great yeah. line. It is a great line. Yeah. So it, it, the the series works on a lot of different levels, and that's why we like it. And part of it is politics plays a central role in propelling the narrative forward. So the basic setup for the astropolitics and human identity politics and nationalism of the expanse is as follows. And when we say identity politics, we actually don't mean it in the kind of uh, grapey political sniping way. We mean it much more in the sense of how identity shaped the movements of nationalism through the 19th century in Europe. So here we are a few hundred years into the future, sometime in say the 2200s, mankind has colonized much of the solar system. Space travel between Earth, Mars, and the asteroid belt, as well as moons of outer planets, has become normal and part of the economy as a whole. So Terrans, People who live on Earth, Terrans, start inhabiting various pieces of rock that aren't Earth. Mars becomes a colony, as do many of the rocks in the asteroid belt, uh, notably Ceres and Ganymede orbiting Jupiter. And there's a lot of mining going on in places such as Ceres and Ganymede to you know, bring resources, you know, new metal resources back to Earth. And Mars really exists because it can, right? We finally got to the point that it could happen, and some people said get me out of here, I'm, I'm done with this Earth thing. And they went and colonized Mars. Earth is ostensibly united with some holdouts such as Afghanistan under the United Nations. So even before the book, the geopolitical landscape is dramatically different from what we think of now. Earth, largely speaking, acts as one. Because if a government really does have the ability to muster its resources and people in one general direction facing outward, we can model it as an actor in a geopolitical or astropolitical model in itself, right? So it can be one actor. And that's why in the, in the expanse, the UN can act as a single actor because it is, it is united. So already we see identity and this sense of nationalism being key driver of astropolitics in the expanse from the get-go. And what changes these identities and and the senses of nationalism? Well, a lot of it is historical events that cause a need for certain identities to come about. I mean, think about the nationalist movements of the 1800s that eventually brought down, say, the Ottoman Empire and brought the rise of, you know, a mostly ethnic nation-state system, right? The Ottoman Empire was a multi-ethnic state that existed for hundreds of years, but when all the nationalist revolutions in the Balkans meant that you know, Greece and Serbia and Bulgaria all wanted to be their own country, the Ottoman Empire fell and had to become Turkey, which was meant for a single 
generally, a single ethnicity. So a lot of this has to, speaks to some very tribal essence of humanity. So identity plays a very big role in the expanse, especially for the belt. But the other reason we see sort of these actors emerge as unified groups is their their tribal sense of having an outsider. So we talk a lot about in-group, out-group theory in in our other episodes. And in The Expanse, what we see is a combination of the same forces of identity that are seen in other ethnic groups. So shared language, shared culture, shared general, you know, geographical space, some shared needs, even down to food, right? So all this stuff creates an identity that forms a single group with a bond, and that becomes a bit of a nation state or actor. But then the other stuff is looking outside, what does the geographical or astrographical group need? And so if we look to Earth, you might be wondering, well, why has Earth united? Right. Why is it under the U.N.? And it's probably somewhat of a similar story to the, the American colonies were British and French largely. And then they, you know, most of them set aside their differences and, and rebelled against the British because, one, there had been a drift of identity. And two, they had problems with how the crown was treating them and they needed to unite in order to deal with those problems. So my guess at why the U.N. gained power as the as the central government of all of Earth in the expanse it was not because of an outside threat yet, but because of the need for Earth to to muster its limited resources to go colonize the solar system. So this sounds a little bit contradictory. Well, Earth has limited resources; it's going to go colonize the solar system. Well, ultimately, what we'll see in a bit here is that we have a very overpopulated planet with dwindling local resources and a very low labor participation rate in order for it to get the resources it needed in order to persist without, you know, people starving or other kind of calamity, it needed to look outside to go get those resources. And now the technology exists for them to go get it. Earth unites in order to muster the resources to drive, you know, to use the technology to go get the raw materials that it needs from the rest of the solar system in order to persist. So these two big changes the uniting of Earth under the United Nations and the expansion of mankind into the solar system sets us up for an entirely new astro-political or solar political structure and therefore an entirely new vector of conflict versus what we know today. Yeah, and I, I, I want to highlight what you said about the very low labor participation rate on Earth because this plays a big role in Earth's identity and also the identities of Mars and the belt as drawn, drawn in opposition to Earth because the rest of the solar system sees Earth as this wasteful planet. There are so many people on what's called basic, which just means they don't have to work. They get an income, but they get a very, very low income. It's not seen as desirable. People want to, A lot of people want to escape basic, but in order to do that, they need to go through this long, drawn-out process in order to go to college, get a job, that sort of thing. It's not normal for everyone to have a job. So the rest of the solar system sees Earth as lazy and having wasted its access to all of these free resources that are just right there under the sky, right? Because there is no sky in the belt. Now, there, there are three major players when you begin in the expanse, Earth, Mars, and the belt. Earth and Mars are the major powers, right? Earth is huge. It has a lot of resources. 
even if part of that means it's controlling resources via Earth corporations in the belt. But because of issues like basic income, it's essentially bogged down by these entitlements. So it can't always bring all of these resources to bear. It's kind of modeled like the late Roman Empire. Mars, clearly a bit smaller, but it's the second largest civilization in the solar system. Unlike Earth, where this huge portion of the population basically isn't working, Mars is unified. It's focused entirely on a single goal, which is terraforming the planet. And it has been ever since people colonized Mars. And this creates this unity in their sense of purpose that just doesn't exist on Earth. And security consequences and the way this plays back into the geopolitical realm or the astropolitical realm is Mars has more advanced weaponry and technology, as well as an extremely martial culture, unsurprising for Martians. But Earth has a bigger arsenal and armada, so it's this issue of quality versus quantity. Yeah, Earth happens to believe that in an outright war, they'd win because they just have more metal to throw at the problem. So you could think of a little bit of a kind of Japan versus United States in the 1940s kind of deal. But some Martians believe that their martial culture could allow them to win. Their more advanced technology could allow them to win. We find out at some point that they have stealth technology, which could change a lot. And Earth doesn't seem to have access to that. But a lot of senior Martian leaders understand that it would be an extremely costly war for a planet that, largely speaking, already lives on the margins, right? One of the reasons Earth can afford BASIC is because its resources are so abundant, whereas with Mars, everyone has to be kind of pulling in the same direction. And if it got into a very destructive war, that would, at the very least, cost a lot of progress on the terraforming project, but then also... Um, it could put you know Mars's entire economy at risk in the way that the United States, the United States, not the United States, Earth, the United Nations, has a lot of resource, you know, spare resources it could keep pulling from. And it is the case that the two had been to war before, but it was a short war, and they avoided major conflict at the last minute when Mars agreed to share the critical space traveling technology that it had developed with Earth. Namely, the Epstein-Barr fusion drives that allows for easier interplanetary transfers. So that war was the war of Martian independence. Earth was going to squish Mars in order to keep it a colony. And Mars said, well, you know what? If you let us go, you can have the Epstein-Barr drive. And Earth said, well, there's a lot of other fish in the sea. If we have this Epstein-Barr drive, we can go out to the rest of the solar system. So deal. Yeah, and a a side note on the Epstein-Barr drive, because it plays a pretty central role in this story, it's sort of the first technological cookie that really comes up and that matters. It lets you move through space much faster, with less fuel, with less matter that you need to carry on board, because it's fusion and convert small amounts of matter into a really substantial amount of energy and be under thrust the entire time that the spaceship is moving, rather than just floating at a fixed velocity. And a side effect of this, and this is where the focus on the science is really interesting, Being under thrust for the entire journey means that since you're accelerating, there is a sort of gravity, an acceleration gravity on the ship. So people walk around because you can accelerate at either 1G or 3Gs or 3rd G for the entire time, or at least half the trip, at which point at the midway, at the midpoint, you flip around and then you're decelerating for the remainder of the trip. So you still have gravity to walk around the ship that point. So you end up at zero velocity when you finally arrive at your destination. And when you 
when you see this and you see the thoughtfulness of it, you know, some of the Star Wars effects seems a little bit silly because, you know, ships are floating through space and dodging and turning like they are in the atmosphere. And of course, that's not how it would work in space. Well, and it's also the case that if you think of, you know, you've got a Star Destroyer or something rolling in on a planet and it just kind of slows down at some point. And you're like, how did it slow down? It's got these massive thrusters in the back. And, you know, you think about the physics, you're like, you've got this huge body that is going a certain velocity and to slow down, you need to provide a ton of energy, ton of acceleration in the opposite direction. And that, you know, that difference really matters in some of the later books when you have a lot more uh, warfare, you know, between, you know, these different, you know, between some different groups, you have spaceships fighting each other and they, you know, they have to. You know, the fact that like you're going in one direction very quickly and all of a sudden you look back and you're like, oh, gosh, I need to be in the opposite direction means that even when you turn and burn against it, you're still moving in the wrong direction. And it's incredibly frustrating. So that that depth of science is is extremely satisfying and something that you you get on and off in, in great sci-fi, but it's definitely on here. But Xander, there's a third group uh, that we need to talk about. There is, of course, the belt. Unlike Earth and Mars, the belt is not a nation state. And like the name implies, this is referring to the asteroid belt. Um, And as time goes on, it refers to both the belt and some of the smaller moons in the outer outer planet. So the belt's not a nation state. And it just kind of comes about as an accident almost because the original people of the belt were miners that left Earth and Mars to make money mining in the belt on asteroids. But over time, over several generations, there are bodies adapted to this very low gravity environment. It's about a third of Earth's gravity on Ceres, which is basically the largest belter colony. And part of the reason they're even able to get it to one-third G is because part of the original engineering project spins up Ceres so that it's spinning faster than it was initially to create spin gravity. So So people live on the inside of Ceres and their feet are pointed outside. Their heads are pointed to the center as this thing spins like a drum. Exactly. And on the smaller rocks like Eros, the gravity is even less. So these people, these belters, are no longer able at a certain point to go back to planets or to go back down what's called a gravity well. And throughout the belt, there are these different stations which are essentially owned by either Earth or Mars corporations. But the people themselves, the belters, are neither Terran or Martian citizens. So they're a large group of stateless people. And this is a really interesting device because it means that we have a major actor with access to key resources, but no state-like organization. Yeah. And it's actually, if you think about, you know, there are various groups of somewhat stateless people, oppressed people over time. You know, you think of the the era of colonies, of colonialism. This is a lot like that. Although what is so interesting, what are the constraints that's put in here by, you know, by just the physics, by, by what, you know, the authors thought about and are dealing with is that these folks, because of their biology, literally have no option to leave. Right. Whereas if you think of, say, you know, the French occupation of Algeria, you know, you had Algerians that went to France and lived there. You had Indians that went to Britain and they rose up inside Britain. I mean, if you think of Othello in the Shakespearean play about the Moor who works in Venice as a great admiral. Uh, or general, you know, you had all those opportunities, whereas the belters literally can, no single belter can ever do that. They are all stuck and they are all stateless and they are all under the boot of Mars 
and Earth. One of the other really thoughtful things that the, the authors, known as James S.A. Corey, one of the thoughtful things they did was they realized that if people are, if you're going to mash up all these people in really tight spaces and they're going to live a very different life, they're going to develop their own culture. All these people, you know, most of them came from Earth. They came from many different nations. So guess what? You now have Belter Creole. You have a new language. And they actually got linguists to help design it. And that's what you heard Xander and I saying at the beginning of this episode. Belters also have, you know, the level of detail in the book here that that is delightful, but also very meaningful for this conversation is that, you know, a lot of belters are often working in, you know, in space where they have spacesuits on, big bulky spacesuits. So nodding your head is meaningless. People can't see it. So you nod using your arms. So all belter expressions are very, you know, their their arms are big and moving around in very large ways because people are at great distance in space, you know, like on a rock or on a station, communicating to each other wordlessly that way. And all these details come together. You know, they have different food. They, they spend, they're obsessive about safety. They're obsessive about, you know, making sure that the thin film of basically tin foil between them and space is always working because otherwise you die. So you have a dramatically different culture from earth. Right. Basically the opposite possible. And that sense of self-identity that grows here. So not only are they a stateless people, but because of their shared experience, they have a shared culture, a shared language, and now a shared identity. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you came from. You're now a belter. And that sense of identity is very analogous to what we see in you know, a lot of these nationalist movements that happen in the 1800s. Yeah, if if you think about the emergence of ethnic groups, I mean, I talked about the Ottoman Empire earlier, and this is a big one in understanding World War One. We'll come back to this, but a lot of these national movements in the 1800s, and especially after the 1848 revolutions that were crushed, all came about when people started to identify themselves amongst a group of people in a new way, and so they thought their identity was something different than it had been for such a long time. And the level of detail here in the book is is really uh, rewarding because if you talk about this Belter Creole, for example, the linguist who helped construct this, and you actually find him on Twitter describing where he got a lot of these different words. They're not random. They're pulled from English and Hindi and Romance languages and German. One of the examples that really sticks out is there's this guy named Detective Miller in the first book who is a Belter. He's born on Ceres, but he works for an Earth Corp. And since Belters can't go back to planets because the gravity is too great, the gravity well. These people, including Detective Miller, are referred to as well-wallas or well-lovers. So the whole language is really well-constructed, mm. and it's just one of the, the core things that differentiates the Belter culture and emerging national identity from Earth and Mars. So throughout this accidental process, Earth and Mars created a brand new ethnic group of people who are wholly isolated from Earth and Mars, have a dramatically different culture, who live on the margins and who are ruled without representation, who are controlled without a state, without rights. And of course, this is going to create some problems going into the beginning of the books. And it's actually until, you know, until the protomolecule shows up, it's really going to be the main source of conflict. So the last thing that's worth mentioning about the setup here 
is that the population centers of these places vary greatly. Earth has 30 billion people, and that's so much that it's in fact a burden, right? Normally, bigger population centers are more powerful, but Earth has reached a point that its population has become a burden. Mars has a few billion, and in the entirety of the belt and the outer planets, so moons, you know, Ganymede, Eros, Ceres, other stations that are peppered around there, there are only a few tens of millions. And so you have these three powers with dramatically different identities. You have a sort of late Roman Empire Earth, a very Spartan Mars, and an oppressed belt, which is just starting to find its identity as a singular people, despite being spread out on this solar archipelago, where they're very isolated from each other, but can communicate with each other, but can be you know, quickly, quickly blocked off or blockaded one by one if they were only to rebel a bit at a time. And that detail ends up being, of course, important and, and explored in the book. But before the book, of course, there's the Butcher of Anderson Station, where Fred Johnson, who eventually leads the OPA, uh, is called on by Earth to destroy a rebelling station called Anderson in order to, you know, sort of uh, depress these, you know, depress the, the likelihood of future rebellion. And what you actually have, what I love so much about the Butcher of Anderson Station, is if you've read the novella, I don't know if you have, Xander. Not yet. Not that one. Not yet. It, it's the million dialogue. So, oh so, my God. Yes. Because yes. what you have is you think, you know, Anderson Station is basically like Milos. Athens is trying to put down all these rebellions on the archipelago islands that it controls during the Peloponnesian War. Anderson is sent to put down the rebellion at Anderson Station. Anderson represents Earth as Athens in this case, and uh, the people of Anderson Station are Milos, and they're essentially, they have this dialogue where it's essentially like, look, destroying us would be awful, and how could you possibly do this? There are children, sick children on board, and we are rebelling because we are not getting the medicine we need for our sick children. And Fred Johnson doesn't quite say this, but he basically says... The strong do what they will, the weak tolerate what they must. It's it's a great read, but uh, The Butcher of Anderson Station does a great job of showing off just how isolated these different stations are and that we need to treat the belt as an archipelago rather than a, geopolitically, or a, a geologically or astrologically cohesive unit in the same way that Earth and Mars are. And we've definitely done shows in the past on sort of the relevance of classical antiquity and the Peloponnesian War to today, to the modern day. So if you want to go back in some of our prior episodes, I know we did one on demagogues. We, we interviewed Lan- Lantern Jack from the Ancient uh, Greece Declassified pod- podcast where we talk about some of those relevance. But so th- that's, that's a little bit of the background. Now let's get into how the actual geopolitical jockeying kind of unfolds as the narrative gets going, right? So we're aware of these three different entities. Mars is constantly afraid and wary of Earth, and Earth is also wary and afraid of Mars. They're constantly in this preparation mode in the event that war breaks out, although generally leaders of both want to avoid conflict because they know it would be so costly. So what's the actual vector of the conflict? What's the tension all over? A lot of the times it's the resources in the belt because Terran and Martian mining colonies both control different aspects of the belt all mixed up with one another, and they both need these strategic resources in the belt for one reason or another. Various metals, rare earth elements, 
water and some of the outer planets that are brought into the belt and, and all over. These are all used to build the advanced electronics and military hardware that Mars and Earth use to sustain and defend themselves. So if one side can monopolize those resources, it would have a distinct advantage. Yeah, we're guessing a little bit as to exactly what minerals are most important here. But given that even now there is con- there is strain over the possession of mining rights to rare earth elements on earth, like today in 2019. And China, for example, has a whole lot of them and the rest of the world doesn't have a whole lot of them. And by their very name, rare earth elements, they're not all that common. They are much more common in the belt. Mars probably has access to very few as well. And so these elements, which are so important in producing advanced technology of any sort, you know, are, are, I'm guessing, we're guessing that they're likely a big vector conflict, vector of conflict here. This preparation that each side is doing is the security spiral at play. So, you know, modern scholars have added a bit of nuance to the security spiral, but it is an idea. It's, it's still very strong in the realist um, school of geopolitics. And so how is it playing out here? We're, we're going to learn both what it is and how it's playing out at the same time. So, in this case, neither side wants to fight. Like Earth and Mars don't want to go to war for funsies. Um, there's no funsies involved here. And it's not a potential war of conquest for either of them either. They don't want to occupy each other. Both of them would, in fact, be quite happy to maintain the status quo. They both have access to the belt. They both have access to essentially shipping lanes throughout the solar system. But the problem is, if they could trust the other side to always respect those rights of access, they'd be fine. But by their nature, they can't. Because if you just, you know, it's good fences make good neighbors. Like if you just leave your doors unlocked, there's a chance someone could break in. If you don't prepare to defend your rights of access to the belt and to these shipping lanes, there's a chance someone else could take them. Because, hey, guess what? You know, wouldn't it be great to have even more of these stations for yourself, even more of these resources for yourself? So because of that mutual mistrust and because of how disastrous it would be to lose access to the minerals of the belt, each side must prepare to defend their access to the belt. It is an is a, uh, astropolitical imperative to defend their access to the belt. But it is that very preparation to defend access is indistinguishable from efforts to monopolize access. So as you're building defensive stations, as you're building a Navy, that hardware can be used both to defend your turf, but also take over the other team's turf in the belt. And so whenever I do something to increase my ability to defend my access, you see it, rightly so, as gaining power to take away my access. I must therefore further do work to defend my access and this tension of potential conflict increases as each of us do the entirely rational thing to try to defend ourselves. That is the security spiral. And we've talked about these analogies in greater depth in some prior shows. Links on the show notes. Yeah, sort of the classic security spiral example is, is World War I in a lot of cases because as soon as one country began to mobilize, all of the other countries had to begin to mobilize too because if they didn't, they ran the risk 
of not being prepared and not having the forces ready to defend against an offensive. But once you're mobilized, those forces can also be used in, a, in an offensive way. So all of your adversaries began rushing to mobilize, and it was kind of like whoever had the first strike advantage, they thought, would win. So Germany struck first, and then clearly that's not how it turned out because modern war was more complicated than they thought. But another example is the Strait of Malacca today, which is yeah. a r- really important sea route for China and how China accesses some of its resources. Right, Eric? Yes. China, if you look at a map of the South Asian Sea, which we've talked about this in previous shows about China, uh, there's a lot, there's a surprising lot of land in that stretches from essentially like Singapore all the way down to Australia. So there's actually very few options for China to ship stuff, ship oil in and ship goods out through the South China Sea to the Middle East and Europe. And so for China, this is this is an access route that's very important for them. Um, it's also very important for India. It's also very important for the Middle East. It's also very important for the United States. And ideally, everyone would like to just have it be open and uh, have everyone have free access to the Strait of Malacca, right? But because of, one, how narrow it is, two, how important it is, it means that losing access to the Strait of Malacca, if someone monopolized it and blocked you out, it would be disastrous for you. Decent example of that is the Bosporus. So Turkey can cut Russia off at any time from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. And that is bad news for Russia, especially in the winter when its northern ports are totally frozen. So Russia needs access to the Mediterranean to trade and you know, and so it's a it's at a major geopolitical disadvantage because Turkey owns the Bosporus. So for China, losing access to the Strait of Malacca would be a major problem, and that's what's driving China's efforts to essentially colonize and build its way into the South China Sea, expand its naval presence there, so that it can defend its right to access the Strait of Malacca to continue trading and. As it does that, it puts other nations' security at risk. So U.S. allies such as the Philippines um, and also, of course, like you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, uh, even Japan, India, all have a stake in, you know, in this. And as China builds out its military, it's, it's creating the sparks of conflict. The U.S. is moving back by sending naval fleets through the South China Sea to kind of establish the right to continue accessing that. It's bananas. So the Strait of Malacca actually is a pretty good analog for the expanse with the competition between Earth and Mars. It's not perfect, but because China-U.S. competition is sort of the main axis of competition, these little tiny narrow passageways becomes really become really important. So do the countries that find themselves near those passageways. So Singapore, a tiny little country without a big population, sits at the southern end of the Strait of Malacca and all of a sudden has an extraordinarily important strategic role and is a U.S. ally, even though it's right next to the U.S. or Mm. right next to China. Singapore is near China. So it's not a perfect analog, but like with the belt and the expanse, both are kind of jockeying over these critical supply routes. So in the expanse, the OPA, or the Outer Planets Alliance, which is a belter group, and it's trying to forge this single unified belter identity so that it can create its own state that's no longer under Earth's boot and Earth's subjugation. The thing is, both Earth and Mars 
consider the OPA to be a terrorist group. It's very much the one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist sort of situation. So for the same reasons that Earth and Mars are worried about each other, they're also both worried at the same time about the belt taking over and monopolizing its own resources. So you can think about OPEC and the oil crisis in the 1970s. It would give the belt an incredible amount of leverage to hurt both Earth and Mars if the belt did ever unite and seize control of these resources. It would be able to punch above its weight. Even though it only has tens of millions of people, it would control these critical supply lines. And it's the same kind of issue here. The belt belt wants uh, to create its own security for itself, just as Earth and Mars want to create as much security for themselves. But the security of one entity threatens the security of the others. And we're back to the security spiral. We really love how the OPA works in this series, because much like in real life, it's a group struggling to cobble together a single unified identity based on physical necessity, but having to create its purpose by cobbling together a myriad of different, similar but unique belter identities. We did a show on Serbian nationalism, actually, and how modern Balkan states formed their contemporary identity as a result of physical necessities that confronted them in the mid to late 19th centuries, accompanied by the revolutionary ideology that spread throughout Europe following the French Revolution and the 1848 revolutions. Yeah, we'll, we'll include a link to this show. It was from July 2018. It was called Balkans and the Duality of Nas- Nationalism. And it discusses this interplay of physical necessity and the need to access certain resources with the creation of a new ideology that can, that can tie together previously disparate groups of individuals. In the case of the 19th century, it was Balkan peasants and Balkans elites, which both had very different objectives, but ultimately... The national identity let them reject the Ottoman Empire together. So for anyone interested in how World War I started, you need to begin with an understanding of these modern Balkan identities and how they were formed out of the needs created by the decline of the Ottoman Empire. You simply cannot understand the modern world without understanding World War I. You can't understand World War I without knowing how these modern nationalist identities came to be. And that's exactly what's happening in the belt. Yeah. So the belt, right, you know, at the beginning of the books is completely and utterly dependent on foreign imports of resources to survive. So, I mean, literally it's air, it's water and it's food all come from somewhere else. It exports minerals. It imports the things humans need to literally survive. So even a small disruption in these imports, let's say, oh, I don't know, an ice hauler that's supposed to deliver water to Ceres being shot out of space becomes, I don't know why I brought that example up, but becomes a critical issue of survival to the belters who are constantly living on the margins of existence. And so when a mysterious ship uh, shoots down this ice hauler, everyone starts accusing everyone else because all of a sudden you have an actor that is willing to you know, cut the lifeline, the literal lifeline that the belt has to the resources it needs. It creates a great deal of tension because people's lives are very much at risk. And when that's the case, all actors know that people are willing to use violence to defend their access to what they need. Someone has kicked the hornet's nest. And so Earth thinks that there's a secret weapon that Mars controls because it was stealthy and that, you know, and that probably Mars provided some stealth technology to the belt to mess with Earth. So Earth is seeing a Mars belt conspiracy 
Mars thinks that the Earth shot down the ice hauler in order to draw Mars into a war that Earth would finally win, so they think it's a black flag operation. And the belt thinks that, of course, both Earth and Mars are its enemies and that it will suffer the consequences of any Earth-Mars war. The belt is sitting there going, well, I don't care which one of you idiots shot it down, but you're both terrible, and we're going to get hosed because we are so dependent on the supply lines, any naval war in space would severely interrupt them. And it turns out, Everyone in these conjectures are wrong. And this is part of the brilliance of the series. You don't actually know what's happening as the story is unfolding. You don't have perfect visibility. So you're stuck in this realm of political uncertainty right along with the characters living it. And the players in this great game in The Expanse are Christian Avasarla, which I believe, Eric, is your favorite character, right? Absolutely. <laughs> He's a fucking bobblehead. He's a fucking uh, bobblehead. <laughs> Matt- Madam, Madam Undersecretary, you can't call the Secretary General a bobblehead. Why not? It's, he's a fucking bobblehead. I call him that to his face. <laughs> yeah, Christian Avasarla is essentially the leader of Earth, but she's such a politically savvy character that she doesn't want to be actually in the position in charge. She doesn't want to be the Secretary General. She is the Assistant Depu- Deputy Secretary. So she's like, you know the assistant to the second person in line, but she's really pulling all the strings and she's in charge. And one of the other key characters is Fred Johnson, who is the butcher of Anderson Station. He used to be a U.S. Earth Marine, but after he saw sort of how Earth was treating the belt, he defected and now he actually runs one of the major Outer Planets Alliance factions. And Fred in particular uses the chaos of of what's going on to try to carve out a place for the belt and the outer planets in order to try to create this legitimate state and this home with sufficient security for all of the belters. So into all this kindling that is so well set up, a spark of unimaginable proportions shows up. And that, of course, is the protomolecule. So nobody of these three primary actors was responsible for what happened. Nobody was trying to upturn the tea kettle. Nobody was trying to start a war except Protogen. Protogen, you can model them a little bit like ISIS or any other transnational terrorist group where their objectives are best are best furthered by chaos, right? So you have a transnationalist group. In this case, it's driven by, you know, their, their driving ideology is power rather than religion, like power for some other, you know, reason other than religion. But, you know, they're a corporation as opposed to just a, you know, non-state actor. But, but what they're really out for is using the protomolecule that they have monopolist control over at the moment and nobody knows about it to try to, you know, acquire power and, and further and, and, you know, do whatever they want with that. Right. And of course, the who has the protomolecule and what are they doing with it and why is going to evolve pretty dramatically. But it starts off with Protogen. And uh, they're the ones who, as as the characters later find out, blew up the ice hauler, blew up the Doniger, got everything started. And they release the protomolecule into Eros. And, you know, it, it seems like a biological weapon at first, but it turns out to be, of course, some alien form of maybe life, this protomolecule. And the goal of the life is to go to foreign solar systems that have life-sustaining planets and build interstellar gateways. The goal of Protogen is to figure out what the heck this thing does so they can see how to use it to their own aims. But they have, they have of course, opened a Pandora's box 
to a technology that is far, far beyond any human comprehension. And they have now made themselves, you know, they, they have very much upturned the tea kettle. Right. And some time goes on and essentially the proto-molecule ends up building this ring gate, which was its original purpose. It, it was sent to build these interstellar transportation ring networks. And in true human fashion, as soon as this ring gate is built, everyone charges right through it before really understanding what it is, how it works, where it's going, or what the consequences might be from just hopping through this alien gate that no one knows about. And this is a real central aspect of the entire Expanse series. Humanity cannot help but avail itself of whatever new technological advancements it can get its hands on. And mankind will rush ahead almost regardless of the consequences. And even the most powerful political leaders are left catching up with this dynamic. If the opportunity is there, someone will take advantage of it. And human history will get propelled forward regardless of the consequences. Well, and I think that's a this is a really good moment for both thinking about society and thinking about geopolitics in general is that if you if you think of the game theory, you are any actor with any power or interest. You could be a government, you could be a corporation, you could be an individual. This technology is now available. You know that you cannot stop 100% of people from accessing it, right? That's the thing about technology. You can't, you can't stop 100% of people from using it forever. Someone's going to use it at some point. And so you now, knowing that, if that other person can gain some sort of advantage from using that technology, then you have you essentially, in order to keep up, have to go access it in some way. You have to either try to take control of it and, and limit its access, or you just need to access it as well. But ultimately, you know, if we don't model humanity as one big group that makes one big decision, but individuals who are making individual decisions, the game theory actually just pushes humans to all go after this new technology or these new resources or this new real estate as fast as possible, which is why you see humanity continuing to just like run headlong into the unknown, both in history and in the books. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So this ring gate forms. And mankind learns how to travel through it. And, the, and here are the consequences, because on the other side of that ring gate are gates to 1,300 other solar systems spread throughout the galaxy. And in almost a blink of an eye, 
humanity has access to over a thousand other potentially habitable worlds. And there are two important consequences that come with access to these new planets. First, breathable atmosphere. Unlike the belt, you don't have to constantly be ensuring that your breathing systems are there because there are atmospheres and in many of them. And two, planet-like gravity. So unlike the belt, which is living in microgravity, these planets are more like Earth, similar in size. So why would anyone choose to leave Earth to live in microgravity on a small rock that's entirely dependent on foreign imports to even be able to breathe? And a recurring theme in Belter culture, um, as Eric mentioned, is this need to constantly check systems simply because survival is so difficult. Well, of course, the answer is most people wouldn't choose that. They choose instead to go where it's easier to survive if they are going to be this colonist, where they can breathe out in the air and grow crops without as much foreign dependence. So it, it becomes clear that these new planets have a huge competitive advantage in addition to being able to offer some of the mining resources that the belt was colonized to extract in the first place. Yeah, and so now the belt, you know, if, if you're a savvy operator in the belt, you look up and you go, oh God, nobody needs us anymore. And this is going to be a freaking problem. Um, so you, you're, you know, there's this huge incentive to go colonize these extrasolar planets. Um, one thing that, you know, we'll spoil up to, because we've read further than this, but we'll spoil up to is that, you know, the if you go to the Expanse wiki for the show, season four, episode one is called New Terra, right? So, so someone's going to go colonize something here and, and a lot of people want to. And so this push is a lot like, you know, the gold rush of 1849, the Wild West in general in the United States. And the problem is these planets are, well, they're planets. They're very big rocks with lots of gravity. And that means that just like all the other planets, the belters can't go down there. And so now you have belters who, one, their colonies, they're, they're very expensive to maintain uh, belt colonies or belt mining stations are no longer as necessary because you know, you've now used wormholes to bring big planets that are self-sustaining with mining, you know, with mining opportunities as well that provide the resources that the belt provides. You have 1,300 of those that people can go get the things they needed from the belt there that are much cheaper to maintain, that are in fact going to be self-sustaining. And so the belt is sitting there going, oh crap, right? The only thing we had going for us exclusive access to these critical resources in the solar system just vanished. So they have no bargaining power, no future investment, no future source of income. They are stuck physically on rocks with absolutely no way to feed themselves going forward. And we won't get into this. I won't, I won't re reveal this spoiler, but the precarious situation of the belt exposed by access to the new planets through the ring gates, just like in real life, means someone steps in to do something about it. And that's in book five. But we won't tell you what it is because you should go read the book. Now, this is this uh, dependence on foreign Im imports in order to just merely be self-sustaining is a great analog to a lot of modern day geopolitical consequences. And by modern, I'm talking about like the last 150 years. So you look at Japan, for example. It was driven to modernize extremely rapidly in the late 19th century. I mean, they went from being an agrarian society pre-Meiji Restoration in the late 1860s to beating Russia in 1904, 1905 within 30 years. 
And this is because Japan saw Great Britain and the U.S. basically subjugate China, which was also at the time a fairly agrarian society relative to the Western countries. And China had for thousands of years been the most powerful country in that sphere of the world. So in order to modernize that quickly, Japan needed access to industrial resources, steel, oil, rubber, and it didn't have any of these on its island. It's a very resource-scarce place. So Japan had to secure access to these resources somehow beyond its own shores by controlling sea lanes. And this is what pushed Japan out, bringing it into conflict with China in the 1894-95 Sino-Japanese War, the 1904-05 Russo-Japanese War that I just mentioned in which Japan shocked the world by beating Russia. No one expected that to happen. Japan's involvement in World War I, it actually was on the side of the Allies because Japan conquered some of Germany's Southeast Asian colonies, took control of those resource-rich places. And then subsequently, of course, when World War I, in World War II, when Japan went back to conquer China, take over places like Dutch Indochina and Southeast Asia, and this is ultimately what brought it into conflict with the United States. It's foreign dependence on or its dependence on foreign imports. Yep. And when those when that access is at risk, conflict will arise. So Mars, too, finds itself at a terrible crossroads when these new worlds open up. So Mars kind of had an like you could walk outside as long as you were under the domes. So it was a lot better than, you know, living on series or living in a station. But, you know, it it's still pretty rough living, right? You're living in these domes, you're working all the time, you have fairly scarce resources, and all of the resources of Mars are being turned towards this terraforming project that they estimated would take another 100 years to finish. Living on Mars was hard, and it would continue to be hard for a long time. And remember, what was the main reason that humans left Earth to go live on Mars? It was so they wouldn't have to live on Earth anymore. Because they, you know, for lots of reasons, but, you know, they didn't want to be on this kind of like dying planet or this, or this, you know, fading, slow, sad planet. They wanted to go stake a life for themselves. These were the kinds of people who are frontiers people, right? Who are part of the Wild West. And now all of a sudden you have access to thousands of planets or over a thousand planets that have open sky, that have breathable air that have, you know, you can just, like, can you imagine when you grew up in a place where you had to hydroponically farm everything that, can you imagine just like, oh, if you find the right patch of dirt, you can just throw seeds in the ground and food comes out. Uh, It's bananas, right? And so, you know, Mars is at risk as well because it was the sole destination for anyone who wanted to leave Earth. And now, there are a thousand other places that you can go that are a lot easier to live on. And so all of a sudden, the, the unifying national identity that got people behind the way of life on Mars, the way that Mars governed, which is that terraforming project, is gone. Because there's no reason to work so hard to create a livable planet that won't be accessible for many generations when there are hundreds of other worlds that you could go to right now. So both Mars and the belt are in a crisis of existential proportions. And this is basically where the expanse is set up for the beginning of book four and season four. And season four is coming out December 13th. So you don't have to wait that long. And what what Eric and I both love about sort of the central role of astropolitics and supply chains is, is how, well, how central logistics 
are in all of the political considerations of the book. That was a somewhat redundant sentence, but you know what I'm saying. And <laughs> uh, the, cent- the central, central part, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Uh, anyone who's read a little bit about war, studied war, has probably heard the expression, you know, amateur study tactics, professional study logistics, because without access to supplies, a state cannot wage war. It can't defend itself. It can't feed its people. Supply of resources is everything, and it is central in the expanse. It is, it is an extension of all of these trends and cycles that we see of human history into a very realistic-feeling future world. Yeah, one of the great historical summaries of how trade routes change the world over and over is called the Silk Road. We'll link it. And and I think that the Silk Road leads a little too heavily on trade routes are literally everything or nearly everything, but they are certainly very influential. And so we see historically that logistics, trade routes, access to resources, the ability to move people and move goods easily have played such a huge role in the rise and fall of empires, in essence, geopolitics for all of human history. And when those trade routes change, the world changes as well. So when the Romans pacified the Mediterranean, they created the the world's first stable superpower with wealth unimaginable to, you know, a millennium, you know, any time before or millennium after. And it lasted until these massive migratory pressures from the steppes broke it. Um, And, you know, nothing like it again was seen until the age of navigation, because the trade routes that the Romans were able to establish around the Mediterranean, both through roads, but also through having a pacified Mediterranean Sea and the ability to trade across all these locations, that had been broken when the West was lost. And so the world changed dramatically when those supply lines broke. But then the age of navigation happened. So ocean, ocean crossing ships were now available. And they they went and they found the new world. They went and started trading with India and Africa and China from Europe. And so everything in Europe changed again. The, the Atlantic powers became preeminent. Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, and then England. No longer was the Mediterranean the place to be. And uh, of course, eventually the U.S., grew to have access to both oceans and built the Panama Canal to easily trade between its own coasts and to bring the flow of trade to center around the new world. And so the the focal point of the global economy and power shifted from the old world to the new. And the interplay between economics and defense with the Panama Canal is really interesting because it was developed in part to facilitate trade and the movement of resources like Eric mentioned. But in World War II, without the Panama Canal, it would have been extremely difficult for the U.S. to move its Atlantic and Pacific fleets back and forth. It would have had to go all the way down around the tip of South America. So in the expanse, the analog to this is this area called the slow zone. And the slow zone is this, the area inside the ring gate before transferring to another solar system. So you go through one gate, there's the slow zone, and then you have to go through another gate to get to another solar system. Yeah. I mean, it's and basically it, a bubble where you have 1,300 holes that immediately pop you to 1,300 solar systems, right? Exactly, yeah. And the slow zone becomes the new center point of trade. And Eric, you, you mentioned this to me before on the call. You said the slow zone is kind of like the Panama Canal, but on steroids, you know? Oh, on ultra steroids. I mean, it's like... It's like if the Panama can, I don't, I was going to go for an analogy, but 
just you've got this choke point in the middle of, you know, imagine this far future. You have these 1300 worlds and you've got a single freaking choke point to trade between all of them. Insane. Yeah. And in this new future, all the trade goes through and flows through the slow zone. So, of course, the slow zone is going to become a major point of geopolitical or astropolitical contention between all of the major players. And the belt and Mars have just become a lot more irrelevant due to this new age of intersolar navigation. And as the human tendency to move towards all of these new resources and opportunities opens up, it basically eradicates whatever advantage the, uh, that Mars and the belt had in terms of offering benefits to humans as a place to live. So the opening of the ring gates is like the discovery of the new world. New powers in the series are going to arise. New trade, war, uh, new trade routes will form. War, of course, will keep breaking out as the new expanded human universe realigns itself towards this new astropolitical reality. Yes, it is. And so ultimately, this whole journey and this shock that happened on you know, on a much grander scale than the discovery of the new world. But imagine what the new world did to not just Europe, but all of the world. But of course, immediately Europe, the shock of the discovery of 1300 other worlds, 1300 new worlds, the shock of that to a system that was already somewhat destabilized is incalculable. And uh, those of you who have not gotten to read through it, will really enjoy it. But where this all started was the need to supply Earth with additional resources leads to the colonization of the belt. And it is also that colonization by Earth corporations that leads to a class of subject peoples resenting a foreign power that controls them. And when the need to access those resources in the belt disappears with the appearance of these new planets, all of a sudden, the economic incentives to keep supplying the the belt with investment, food, and air disappears. The incentive to keep building the terraforming project on Mars disappears. So long with the rise of whatever powers can go access the vast resources of these new worlds, the decay of former powers is inevitable. So all of these issues of geopolitics and supply chain issue and issues and logistics and political identity, they're all a central part of the expanse, but they're by no means the only thing that makes the series really wonderful. We haven't really gone into some of the science fiction bits. I mean, we talked about how ships can burn at different gravities, but you know, how do human beings go through a nine G burn? Well, they need to be injected with what they call the juice, this formula that keeps people's capillaries from bursting and giving them strokes. It's all very well considered. And I want to give a little teaser to our listeners, which is the teaser that you gave me, Eric, and this will spoil absolutely nothing. But I was hooked on The Expanse after the first episode I watched and the first book that I read. And the audiobooks are great. They're really wonderful performances. But Eric told me, listen, there's eight books out right now. There's a ninth coming out next year. In a way, everything up through book seven is a setup. It's a setup for oh, what yeah. happens in book eight. And it's oh, true. Yeah. So you're going to start reading this book or listening to it on audiobook. And it's, it's going to be enrapturing, and you're just going to be wondering what's coming. And there's something even bigger coming. Yep. So up until, and it's actually up until book eight. Um, so it's up through book seven. What makes The Expanse such a great study in geopolitics 
is that it's not an historical retrospective. We're not looking back on things that happened and asking why did they happen. What the authors get to do and and what a fun job they have is they get to say, okay, we're injecting a shock into a system. You know, we've got a system set up for reasonable reasons. We're injecting a shock into it that is plausible uh, from, you know, sci-fi, you know, from, from a sci-fi perspective. And then what is going to happen from that? How would people react? Well, they react this way. Okay, what consequences that cause? It causes this. Okay, that change. How are people going to react to that change? And so one of the things that makes the book enjoyable is that it's a series, it's the theme of The Expanse to me is actions have consequences. So you see people taking these perfectly reasonable, making these perfectly reasonable decisions, given the situation that they're in, given what they're facing. And then there are consequences from that that were unanticipated, but obvious in retrospect, which is some of the, the brilliance of the writing. And that is the essence of geopolitics. That is why there is almost a sense of inevitability to geopolitics, is that people are faced with a situation a limited set of options, a limited set of resources by which to act. And what is the most reasonable thing that you can do as a singular actor in this situation? And there's typically a fairly okay group. There are a fairly strong group of answers that people are going to pick between. They're all kind of directionally in the same place. You know, someone, someone occupies the Strait of Malacca. What happens? Are people going to strike back? Almost certainly because it's too terrifying. You know, it's too terrible not to. It's not that they have to, it's that they will. And so looking forward, as these shocks happen and as these decisions happen, you, you get to watch the forces of geopolitics, astropolitics, human nature, identity, nationalism, all play out both in the big groups, in these big players, and for individuals. So it's a really enjoyable way of getting to see geopolitics and kind of the associated societal stuff unfold as opposed to already know the story and try to apply a reason to it as a, you know, for a geopolitical junkie, there's, there's nothing better. So with this dear listeners, we complete our hundredth episode and Woo! it's, it's been so much fun. We hope you've enjoyed the ride so far. We've been doing this now for almost four years and, you know, we tried to, to link back a little bit in this episode to some of the prior episodes that we've done and, and reference sort of some of these reconsidery ideas and how they apply to this really interesting world that's created in The Expanse. So if you're interested in listening to some of those prior episodes, as we mentioned, we'll have those on the show notes, reconsidermedia.com slash podcast. Just go there, look for The Expanse episode, and at the bottom we'll have all the links to the prior episodes. Or you could just find us on iTunes or you know Google Play, Overcast, what have you. If you enjoy the show, follow us at Reconsider Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Feel free to email us. We love listener suggestions, and we made a lot of shows based on things that folks have sent in. You can reach me at Xander, X-A-N-D-E-R, at Reconsider Media, or you can reach Eric, E-R-I-K, at ReconsiderMedia.com. And parting thought from me is I actually recently just caught up on all of our reviews on iTunes and on other places. One, we've got a lot of them. Holy smokes. And two, they're all really nice. I was just, I almost, I, I actually almost cried a little bit because I don't know, sometimes the hardest part about podcasting is, is you're like talking into the void, right? You, you sit here and you talk in a microphone and you wonder, you know, you do it because it's fun. You do it because you love it. Mike Duncan had a great talk about this. Like, what's the reason you go podcast about something? It's because it's you can't help it. 
can't help thinking about this stuff and and wanting to share. And all you can do is do your best and hope that someone out there is going to get something out of it. And yeah, so sorry, I'm I'm welling up a little bit, but so it just it meant so much that we don't have to like reading that. I realized we don't have to face the kind of existential dread of the podcaster, which is that you're just staring at this like little metal microphone and, and wondering if you're just wasting your time and wondering if anyone, if anyone, yeah, if anyone cares, if anyone gets anything out of it. So anyway, to everyone who wrote a review, it just meant, it meant the world to us, meant the world to me. So just wanted to say, you know, for all of you out there, even just the ones who listen, because we do get to see the stats, just thanks. Thanks for being part of the ride with us. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, for making Reconsider What It Is. This is the 100th episode, but we're not slowing down. This is just the beginning. We're going to keep going. Tune in for more good Reconsider episodes in the future. This is Xander. Oh, wait. I almost forgot about our tagline. Remember, remember this 100th episode to not let the pundits do the the, the sinking. Don't let the pundits do the thinking Lots for you. What are you sinking about? <laughs> <laughs> Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. Und this is Eric signing off. <laughs> Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.